Thank you for the grace that you give us, Lord, as unworthy, wretched sinners in your sight. And Lord, we're thankful for the grace of our Lord Jesus that makes it all possible because of his grace, because of his willingness to come, to lay down his life, to die in our stead, to be our substitute in our place, to shed his precious blood, to redeem us, Lord, from the pit. We're grateful, Lord, that we stand today, we sit today in your presence as objects, trophies of your grace. Everything that we have, we have because of grace. Everything that we are called to do, we can do it only by your grace. And everything, Father, that you require of us, Lord, you grant us the strength by the grace that you give to us in our hearts, Lord. So thank you. We bless you. Thank you for the grace that you've given to our church. Thank you for the grace that you give our families, our children. Father, we, continue, we ask that you would help us to continue in the grace of God. Build up your body, Lord, by grace. Thank you, Father. It's in Jesus' name we pray now. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, we are uh, transitioning, as we said, from dealing with the subject of eschatology and now to the subject of what we can call practical theology. We looked at that last week. We began looking at that in terms of the ecclesiology that had to do with the church's uh, view of leadership. And uh, now uh, the Apostle Paul is going to turn more inward in terms of looking at the body of Christ and how ministry should be uh, taking place in the body. Uh, and so that's what this is all about. It's really what we can call taking care of the church, sort of providing discipleship, ministry, nurturing the church, building the church up. You know, the Bible says pastors, teachers are supposed to teach the Word of God. We're supposed to preach doctrine. We're supposed to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. In other words, it is all of our job to do the work of the ministry. It's not just the job of a collective few in the church. It's every one of us is being spiritually, theologically, doctrinally equipped so that we will be competent enough to do the work of the ministry. Now, I want to begin with that on, on that note because my first point is really uh, the view that we ought to have of the church. See, this concern that Paul has for the church. This admonition, these exhortations, and really beginning in verse uh, 12, what you have is a series of imperatives. In other words, it's one command after another. It's one command. Esteem your elders. It, it, uh, esteem your leaders. You know, have high regard for them. Uh, admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays. These are all commands. Uh, they're born out of a pastoral concern that the Apostle Paul has for the church, a concern that I will suggest to you did not spring spontaneously out of the writing of this letter, but that sprung out of the deep well of Paul's pastoral ministry and his personal devotion, commitment, and love for the church. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 15. Paul saw himself in two ways in relationship with church. Number one, he saw himself as a priest. 
Number two, he saw himself as a sacrifice. Just to see these these, uh, concepts, look at Romans chapter 15. Romans 15 really lays out really this deeply rooted sort of a, a commitment to the church on behalf of Paul, his devotion to the church. Really, Paul sees himself as something of a prophet in the midst of the church. Uh, he sees himself almost like an Isaiah-like prophet in the midst of the matter of fact, he actually alludes back to the book of Isaiah in this section of Scripture. But look at, look at the uh, embodiment, the priestly embodiment that Paul had here for the church. He says, I've written you, this is uh, Romans 15, verse 15. I've written to you very boldly, he says, on some points as to remind you again because of the grace that was given to me from God. A lot of times the Apostle Paul is going to stress the grace of God in his life when he is ministering on behalf of God. He does that all the time. Grace was given to me so that I would minister. That's the foundation of his ministry. He says, again, verse 16, to, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, ministering, here it is, as a priest, the gospel of God, so that my offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. Therefore, in Christ Jesus, I have found reason for boasting in the things pertaining to God, for I will not presume to speak of anything except that Christ, what Christ has accomplished through me resulting in the obedience of the Gentiles by word and deed, in the power of signs and wonders, in the power of the Spirit, so that from Jerusalem, around about all the way to Illyricum, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ, and thus I preach, I aspire to preach the gospel not where Christ was already named, so that I would not build on another man's foundation, but as it is written, they who had no news of himself of him shall see, and they who have not heard shall understand. That's the reference going back to Isaiah. Why do I read all the way down to there? Because everything from those who heard Paul to those that needed to hear Paul to his missionary endeavors was born out of this commitment to be a priest on behalf of God for the church. What does a priest do? Well, if you look back to the Levitical code, a priest was the person who dispensed the law of God. He was the one who taught the word of God. He discipled the people of God. He interceded on behalf of the people of God. But again, like I said, he doesn't just see himself as a priest who officiated at the altar of God. He literally saw himself as a sacrifice upon the altar of God. Look at Philippians chapter 2 just to see this. So what we're getting here from Paul is that every aspect of his ministry, every part of his identity was ultimately worship that was offered up to Yahweh. It was almost like a ritual worship uh, that Paul had on behalf of the church and for God and for his glory, that which is pleasing to him. Philippians chapter 2, a sacrifice is something that is uh, put and laid down to be killed on behalf of the people. It was uh, that which brought redemption. A sacrifice was something that was given in the place of others. That's the way that Paul saw his ministry. He was willing and ready to be sacrificed for the sake of others. Not redemptively in terms of a Christological sense. It wasn't as if Paul's death atoned for anybody's sin. But you know the metaphorical language he's using here is that he saw himself as that which made for people's redemption through his pastoral ministry. 
Beginning in verse 14, Philippians 2, he says, Do all things without grumbling, disputing, so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you appear as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that in the day of Christ Jesus I will have reason to glory, because I did not run in vain or toil in vain, That is the summation of his pastoral apostolic ministry in the church. But even if I am being poured out, you didn't want to be poured out in vain, but Paul is saying, look, if I'm going to be poured out, which is a reference to death, and uh, of course, ultimately to martyrdom, which of course Paul suffered. Martyrdom under Nero. If I'm going to be poured out, he says, as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and the service of your faith, I rejoice and share my joy with you all. Here's the clincher. Ready? Verse 18. I urge you, rejoice. Watch this now. You thought this was a heavy calling for Paul. Uh Uh-uh. Throws it right back on us. I urge you, rejoice in the same way. And share your joy with me. In other words, he's not the only one that's going to sacrifice on behalf of the faith of the church. He's not the only one that's being called to a heavy calling. He's not the only one that has the cost, uh, account the cost of discipleship. You too rejoice with me in the same way. In other words, take this same sacrificial mindset upon yourself in the way that you minister to the body of Christ. And in by doing that, you will be sharing mutual gospel joy with one another. That's what this is all about. But you know what it sort of precipitates? In other words, if you do not have the proper view, if you cannot, in the same way as Paul... Take ownership of the church. Your joy will be immature. It will be uh, half-hearted and it will, be, it will fail to be realized for what it ought to be. And so my first point today is that taking care of the church begins by taking ownership of the church. I love this. This is what pastors live for. Be able to admonish you to take ownership of the church. Because it's so glorious. It's so right We have to take ownership of the church because the church is Christ's body. The church is Christ's people, Christ's household. The the, the church of God is Christ's doing, and He is the head of the church. And so there's a sense of urgency here. It's a zeal to love and to nurture and to take care of the body of Christ. I want to draw your attention to something. As we think about the, the enumeration of all these issues, in other words, We're going to see dealing with the unruly, dealing with the faint-hearted, dealing with the weak, being patient with everybody, not paying evil for evil, seeking the good of everyone. All of these individual needs and persons and challenges in the body of Christ. We have to have a proper view of the body. So go to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Paul knew and understood these body dynamics in the church. And there is a pivotal phrase uh, that is used in the context here. But I want us to just read the text. A lot of, I was looking over my notes, I thought, well, this is a lot of scripture. So fasten your seatbelts, kind of buckle in, you're in for, uh, you're in for a lengthy ride today. (laughs) 
beginning in verse 14. 1 Corinthians 12, beginning in verse 14, says, The body is not one member, but many. If the foot says, Because I am not a hand, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less a part of the body. In other words, it doesn't matter what your estimation is in the body. If you yourself have a faulty view of yourself in the body, that doesn't make you not part of the body. That just means you're not functioning well in the body. That's the problem. And then he says, And if the ear says, Because I am not an eye, I'm not part of the body, it is not for this reason any less part of the body. If the, body, if the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? In other words, where's the nose? Okay, you have like uh, Mr. Potato. Remember, you have to plug it all in. I mean, it doesn't look real good until you have all the parts on there. You know what I mean? It's kind of a scary toy if you think about it. You're basically giving your child a deformed... Anyway. They don't even have that. That was my generation. I don't know what they got today. I'm sure it's on an iPad somewhere. He says, But now God has placed the members, each one of them, in the body just as He desired. He says, if they were all one member, where would the body be? (laughs) Interesting. In other words, God has not designed one member. Uh, God didn't want to design a hand as the representation of Christ on earth. No, no, no. He designed a body. But when we don't take our role serious, when we don't take ownership of the church, when we don't see ourselves in the light of how God sees us, then we bring deformity to what God has designed. But now he says, there are many members, but one body says, the eye cannot say of the hand. Now, this is the line you need to underline, circle, or make a mental note of right here. Verse 20 and 21. I have no need of you. Or verses, uh, uh, verse uh, 21 rather. He says, I have no need. Or again, the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, it is much truer that the members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. In other words, in your mind, you may think that the body parts that are more prominent, the face, the hair, the eyes, the arms, whatever, you may not be thinking of your little toe on your foot as important. But we know that it, you know, your toes, I mean, they're important. I uh, tripped on my sandals the other day, sliced my big toe wide open, uh, blood everywhere. Let me tell you, you need your toes. I got a band-aid on my toe right now because dress shoes don't feel the best on a toe like that. You know what I'm saying? The Lord will make, make you aware that you need every part of your body and you need them to be functioning well. And therefore, he tells us, That those members of the body which we deem less honorable, on these we bestow more abundant honor, and our less, and he says, and our less presentable members become much more presentable, whereas our more presentable members have no need of it. But God has so composed the body, giving more abundant honor to that member which lacked. Wow, that's interesting. So that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. That's the whole point. Every single part of the body counts. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. That's such a beautiful depiction of 
taking ownership of the body of Christ. And it is with that state of mind that we now move to the particular needs and the particular challenges that arise within the body, knowing that this is our job to minister to such people, whatever category, whatever part of the body they may fall. Well, what Paul is going to give us here is two things. He's going to lead us to deal with real challenges, practical challenges in the body. And then in verse uh, 15, we're going to deal with real conflict in the body. The first, and these kind of overlap, but those were my points. Number one, there is the challenge of disorder. And the reason I say that is because look at the opening phrase. He says, we urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. And so where I get the word disorder is the word unruly, because that's literally what it means. It means to be not in order. And so we'll deal with that. But look, look at the, the urgency here, right? He says, I urge you, brethren. It's a perfect actual balance uh, uh, in, in his writing style, because in the one sense, this is an urgent plea, but also the heart is conveyed by calling them brethren. He's appealing to them as, you know, in, in a tender, familial way. He's not just commandeering. He's not just exhorting them, but he's appealing to them uh, with empathy. And the first thing to notice here like I said, is the repeated use of the imperative. These are not suggestions for us. These are imperatives. These are things that we have to do. And he does this in order to see the church in good order. Matter of fact, in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, look, I want to come and I want to see your good order or your good discipline. This is Paul's uh, a plea for a church to be a well-oiled machine. This is why we care so much about things have to be functioning right. People need to be functioning right. You find out families struggling, individuals struggling, somebody struggling in the church, something's not right. What's the need to make it right? Well, this is it right here because God desires the church to be a disciplined church, which means an orderly church. And nothing will erode the discipline and the health of the church more than rebellious, sinful disorder among its members. That's what he's dealing with here. Again, the word unruly, ataktos, that word in the Greek is used extensively outside of the Bible to refer to several uh, things that uh, all have to do with insubordination. Um, Particularly, it was used in the ancient Greco-Roman world to speak about an army. Uh, down to the individual soldier or the entire army. Uh, Ancient writers used it uh, to to talk about a soldier that would not file in line, uh, would not, but was insubordinate to his superiors. Or it was also used of an entire army that was completely in disarray, confused, unorganized, and not ready for battle. Wow, what an incredible word that Paul uses to describe what's going on here in the church and why it has to be addressed. Uh, It was also used, according to commentators in ancient uh, Greco-Roman world, it was also used of athletes who refused to follow the rules at a gymnasium. I I like the military metaphor better. But, But still, it's the same concept. 
It's insubordination, it's disobedience, it's a recalcitrant, rebellious attitude towards authority, and that is what's at the root of it. Now, contextually, as we think about the context of this letter and this occasion for writing, what Paul had in mind probably had to do with the fact that there were people in the church, we're going to see this a lot in the second letter, there were those individuals in the church that what their disorder, their unruly behavior consisted of was a refusal to work. Um, matter of fact, the Apostle Paul will call them uh, to do this. Uh, look at, uh, I can just read it to you, but Second Thessalonians 3, 7. The Apostle Paul talks about not just the need to pull your own weight, but the fact that he even modeled what this looked like for them. He says, you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. What's that example consist of? That we did not act in an undisciplined manner among you. And repeatedly, he says in the letter that he worked with his own hands. He was a hard worker. He wasn't a leech. He pulled his own weight. He bore his own load. And he was responsible in that way. But still, in the context, it's here in this letter, before we get to that precise issue, I think is more general and... um, and Paul even speaks speaks of this again later. Let me let me read to you again Second Thessalonians chapter three. It's really important for you to learn these verses uh, about the unruly because you're going to run into people in the body. You're going to run into Christians. You're going to talk to people all the time. They're going to fall into these categories. You're going to have friends. You're going to encounter people on Facebook. You're going to just have people that you know that are not doing the right thing at their church, let's say, or people that just come and try to mingle into our church or something like that, and you know they're not walking right. And what's that verse that talks about, you know, that you should be kind of orderly and you responsible in these kinds of, You need to know these verses. For example, uh, the same Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6. Listen to this. Now, we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. Same word. Unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now, listen to how stern that language is, brothers and sisters. This is the Apostle Paul um, insisting that this can very quickly escalate to a disciplinary tone when somebody is that rebellious and that unruly, undisciplined in their life. And uh, really they become essentially what Paul talked about in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 33. There the apostle Paul tells us, be careful because bad company corrupts good morals. You know, it's never the other way around, uh, the other way around right? It's never that by associating with a bunch of bad company, they're going to pick up your good morality. No, 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 no. God in his wisdom warned us against that. Don't think you're like a missionary among bad company. Okay, no. Get away from bad company. Abstain from bad company. Uh, that's, that's really the tone. For your own good. Don't put that much stock in your flesh. In chapter 3, verse 14 of the second letter, again, just because I said this can escalate very quickly in a person's life, he says, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with, associate with them so that he will be put to shame. Wow. Uh, not a verse that's going to be preached a lot in today's churches. Uh, I mean, just recently we had a church say that you know, your practice of church discipline, I don't, you know, they're not willing to go along with that. You know, they don't think it's necessary. Uh, church discipline is really unpopular today. 
Uh, most churches, I would say, do not follow through with church discipline uh, because it's such a stigmatic thing in our culture. It makes it look like the church is a mean church, a bad church, and that's the price you've got to pay for being a biblical church, I suppose. But isn't it remarkable that a person may try to be in the church? Paul is addressing people in the church. <laughs> that struck that I was studying. I, was, I had to step back and acknowledge the obvious. These people are in the church. <laughs> and Paul's got to deal with them. He's not dealing with unruly people out there somewhere. He's talking to people in the congregation, trying to mingle with everybody, trying to fellowship with everybody, trying to be part of all the different activities of the church. And yet, they want to be part of spiritual things, but the reality is, is that their spirituality has been undermined by very practical things. Um, we can have, you know, this is a huge problem in the Pentecostal church. Because in the in a Pentecostal church, your spirituality consists of what you're able to manifest outwardly, physically. So if you can speak in tongues or you can prophesy or you, know, you can claim and you can weep and worship and yell and scream and do all those things and pound the floor, then you must be spiritual. Who cares if you don't pay your bills or your taxes or if you don't mow your lawn, <laughs> Right? Who cares if you're a bad neighbor, if you have a bad reputation in the neighborhood? Who cares if you're a bad co-worker, if you cheat your employer? Hey, you pound the ground, you weep, you scream, you howl, and that must mean that you are a very spiritual person. That stuff is everywhere, and I know that. Some of you came out of that stuff. You told me about it. That's not what, uh, that's not what maturity looks like, unfortunately. Uh, I, I was thinking about this the other day. You know, I think the church... In many respects, the church today has really missed it about what is maturity and what does maturity look like. You know what we measure maturity by nowadays? We measure maturity based on your giftedness. You understand what I mean by that? Is he a good preacher? Uh, Does he know a lot? Good singer? Good musician? Then this must mean that this person is mature. Really, we ought to begin where we typically don't begin. We ought to begin with what's going on in your personal life. How's your family? How's your marriage? How are you doing in your home? How are you raising your children? That's maturity, not the opposite. But we are so dazzled today by the pastor's gifts and the worship leader's talents that we just are mystified about what makes a person, a man or a woman, a true man or woman of God. And it's not your talent. It's not your gifts. It really isn't. I think we have completely missed the boat on that. We have written so much about that, the gifts and, the, and, 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 and all of that, that we automatically assume that is the blessing of God. But where are you really at in your personal integrity. That's the biggest part of all. It's almost like if you're looking for a pastor, you know, the first thing you should sample is not his sermons. It's not his ability to preach. It's his character. What's the character like? Okay, 90% character, 10% ability. Huh? How about that? We've got it totally backwards. We want to know, is he a popular preacher? Does he know how to preach real good? Does he know that? Is he reformed? Is it? We are totally backwards, I think, when it comes 
to recognizing spiritual maturity, even in our own lives, whether you're in ministry, whether you're work, any of that, but just even in your own life, what really in- indicates to my life that I am growing spiritually? It's not simply because you're learning covenant theology. That's not what makes you spiritual, beloved. What makes you spiritual is your character. We need to prize that way more. So that's just kind of my little pet peeve for today, okay? I just got up on my bully pulpit, sorry. But, but it has to be said. I was meditating on this. I just thought, I guess because I see the deficiencies in my own life and I just think about, man, I think we've got it all backwards in many ways. This is a serious problem. That word unruly, that person, that category, those people, this is a huge issue in the church. Every church has them, and some churches seem to just attract that kind of person. Uh, You know, for years, I was part of a men's discipleship school, a men's school of ministry, we called it. And it was a house that we had converted into a school, and it was on a couple acres, and it was really nice. And But, you know, it ended up becoming like the dumping ground for other men that were struggling in their walk. And, you know, the couch was like for the (laughs) guys who just blown through town, you know, and just needed ministry. And the reality is, is a lot of those guys looking back now just needed to get a job and go work hard with your hands and provide for your own needs. Pay your bills, go to work, get up in the morning, work hard, okay, close your mouth and work hard. That is so hard for some people to understand. And so, not surprisingly, a lot of these guys are constantly getting different jobs. Constantly can't keep a job, can't keep a job, can't keep a job. No wonder Paul gave us verse after verse after verse about what it means to have a good work ethic. It's really necessary. But it's a serious problem. The church attracts these kind of people a lot of, oftentimes. And the problem is, is that these people typically will not lead, they will not work, they will not listen, they will not be taught, they will not comply with the culture of the church, the community of the church, the rules of the church. These kind of people have to be confronted and admonished, just like Paul says here, to admonish the unruly. They've got to be admonished sternly. And if not, brother, you know, I thought about this verse right away when I was thinking, it's like, because I've seen this play out in front of me so many times. I've had to deal with this myself and hear about it and, you know, go to pastoral conferences and we tr- trade horror stories and stuff. And I hear about all these, you know, crazy stories that, that fall into this category. And I think of this proverb, a proverb that says this in Proverbs 29, verse 1. It says, A man who hardens his neck after much reproof will suddenly be broken beyond remedy. In other words, you can rebel for so long, you can dig your heels in so often, you can be a problem member for so often, for so long, that if you just simply will not listen to reproof, to correction, it seems like one, you can go to one counselor after another and it just nothing's working. The dreadful proverb is that there could suddenly be something that breaks you beyond remedy. Or yeah, you've gone beyond the, beyond the point where... Nothing works. No amount of counseling works now. And I know there's just so many things that come with that. But that's not all he deals with. Here, next, he deals with the challenge of discouragement. So, one is necessarily sinful. Those who are walking in an unruly fashion are sinning. But this next category, 
dealing with the faint-hearted. tells us to encourage the faint-hearted. That is not necessarily due to sin at all. Discouragement comes to every... Matter of fact, that word there, faint-hearted, halisukas, that word is essentially synonymous with the word discouragement. And how many of us in here have faced discouragement? Right? You can lift your hands for that one. Because <laughs> I'm, I'm guessing everyone in here has been discouraged at one point or another. And it's not necessarily because you have sinned. This discouragement is serious too. It's not to be taken lightly. You know the word that Paul uses here when he speaks of this is a compound word uh, from two Greek words that mean small, uh, haligos, and then soul, sukas. So literally, Paul literally says small soul. And what is he talking about? What's the, what's the imagery? The imagery is that discouragement is of such a nature that it crushes your soul down. It reduces you. It minimizes your soul. When in the Christian walk, we want our soul to be enlarged by God. But trials or sin, hardship, affliction, suffering... All of that has the capacity to make us feel small inside. To make us feel weak. They seem to be able to crush us down. And in doing that, trials or whatever is discouraging you, whether it's just simply depression, has the capacity to snuff out the life of God in our hearts, the fire of God in our soul, the joy of God in our lives, the glory of God in our minds, and the love of God in our affections. If we do not encourage the faint-hearted, then they can slip very quickly into a spiritually debilitating state, almost like a spiritual paralysis, where they're not fit for any good thing. And that can happen to us so easily. When that happens, we need to confront one another with the opposite. You know, I always think of that verse in James, James chapter 1, uh, where the Apostle, Paul, or the Apostle James says, you know, I think it's somewhere in chapter 1, verse 9 and following, I think. But he says something like, you know, um, you know, t- you know the, the, the lowly man is to glory in his exaltation, but the rich man is to identify with his humiliation. In other words, bringing the lowly up and the high down. In other words, the word that is fitly spoken and fitly needed for the occasion. That's what's needed. And when a person is crushed down and their soul is uh, uh, shrunken under their trials and discouragement, what we need to do is highlight the things that make for their glory. And so what we need to do is we need to emphasize to them the promises of God, the redemptive privileges of God, the spiritual blessings of God that they have in Christ in the heavenly places. All these things. Matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, the apostle Peter there is telling us that this is the way that we live the Christian life, is we bank everything on the promises of God. So first, we are fully aware and well acquainted with what God has promised us, and after being fully and well acquainted with the promises of God, then we can begin to add all these virtues to our life. That's how it has to go. You know, speaking of discouragement, happiness, I recently read an article that came out on the subject of happiness, and it, it, it caught my attention because of the, the title of the article. 
it, it spoke about how many perfect days do people have a year. I said, oh, great. This is a great article right here. Let's see how many perfect days I have. And, you know, it, the factors that were involved in this article were somewhat subjective, but I think there were issues that we all deal with, whether you're saved or not. And they used all these different factors to conclude uh, what is a perfect day, you know. They talked about you need to have quality time with family, a good time with your friends. You need to have sufficient entertainment. You need to have sufficient, what they called, mood-boosting activities to ha- make you feel happy. For example, and these were on there, petting a dog. Yes. Number two, eating good food. You think? Another one was shopping for yourself. Okay, so they had all these qualities of what makes... And they concluded, based on if all these things align, if all these planets in your orbit, in your solar system align, then people, on average, have 15 good days a year. That's it. All the other days are just crummy. (laughs) In other words, happiness is hard to come by. It's so true for us. Happiness is not automatic, right? I mean, we're reading a book in our church, When I Don't Desire God, which is basically synonymous with when I'm not happy. Because if you're not desiring God, if you're not fulfilling, you know, if you're not finding your joy in God, you're not happy. At least not with true joy, not with real joy. Remember, it was Moses who says he considered the fleeting pleasures of Egypt, right? To, you know, as loss, right? Or uh, what does it say? And then he says, for the surpassing riches of Christ. So, so the wealth of Christ was more valuable to Moses than all the pleasures that Egypt had to offer. Right? So he, he, he set aside the lesser carnal joys for the superior spiritual joy of the promises that come in, the, in Christ. That's the true wealth, the true riches. Why is it easy for people to be discouraged? Because stress is hard to avoid. Trials are difficult to overcome. Life is complicated. Let's face it. It's filled with, especially for the Christian, we know this, life is filled with sorrow. It's filled with sin and misery. I was watching the news the other day. I literally was sitting in my, my, uh, uh, my couch literally in tears. And it just reminded me how awful this world is. It was, uh, it was uh, Laura Ingram's uh, uh, Fox News. Okay, I watched that, yeah. So I, well, the reason I watched it is because she was doing a thing about the violence in Chicago. You guys see what's going on? It's incredible violence. In the last, I forgot how many years, but I, think, I think it was like 10, 15 years, something like Almost 5,000 people have been murdered, shot, homicides. That's more than the entire Iraqi war. What in the world is going on? So I thought, this is incredible. So I'm watching this, and she ended the program with a, a woman whose nephew, because the mother couldn't be there because of her, she was too emotionally distraught. Her 15-year-old little boy was not a gangster, not a drug dealer, not a thug, all, all intents and purposes, the whole family knew him to be just a sweet young boy, loved school, loved to study, loved uh, sports, 
uh, never got in trouble. He was ambushed by a bunch of gang members behind an alley where they viciously murdered him and burned him alive. And Laura Ingram just begins sobbing. And I'm, like, I'm crying too. I'm just like, this world is so awful. There's so much in this world to get you down if you've got eyes to see what's really going on, you know. This world is filled with all sorts of just misery and tragedy. I just thought, I was watching that and I thought, seriously, I'm just being totally honest with you guys. I just thought, why aren't I at the children's hospital where kids are dying of cancer and everything else? Why aren't I there? What's wrong with us? Oh, we live, we live in a nice city. First go, everything's nice and clean, everything. Do you know there's devastated families just right down the street at your local children's hospital or any hospital? Why aren't we there? I remember doing convalescent home ministry for years and just meeting with elderly folks sitting there, and the same old story, and it was always heartbreaking every time I heard it, but everybody had forgotten about them. Everybody had abandoned them. Uh, just, uh, you know, person after person after person. My kids don't come see me anymore. My church stopped coming. Nobody comes. You know who comes? The Mormons come. And I was like, yeah, over my dead body. I'm going to come back. I told you guys before I used to minister to an old Dodger. His name was Bob Bundy. He was a Dodger back in the 20s or 30s. And they showed me these black, white pictures of him. And anyway, I would minister to that guy over and over. He would tell me, oh, the Mormons were just here. Oh, Life is challenging. There's discouragement everywhere. There's discouragement as a parent, as a non-parent. Children bring discouragement. Not having children brings discouragement. Ministry brings discouragement. Not having ministry brings discouragement. Lowliness brings discouragement. People can discourage you. (laughs) Depression, disappointment, regret, self-loathing. All of these issues can induce serious, spiritually debilitating bouts with discouragement. Discouragement can come out of nowhere. Spurgeon talks about that in his own life, that oftentimes he'd get discouraged. I don't even know why he's discouraged. But he would be sunk into some dark depression. Sometimes he'd preach, he'd feel so discouraged about his sermon, and all he could do is just weep in his wife's lap. Couldn't pull out of it. Had to go on a walk down by the seashore. These are real issues, things that we all face. Now, let's go back to the text because if there is a possible progression exegetically, which when you have lists like this, it's not really often the case, but meaning are these connected? You know, the unruly and the discouraged, are these connected things? Probably not. These are probably standalone items, so to speak. But what about discouragement to weakness? If there's any progression, I would say that if we don't rise to the challenge and encourage one another in our discouragement, what could easily happen is if it progresses or digresses, then we go from a state of discouragement to a state of weakness or debilitation or spiritual paralysis or something like that. Now, this turned into a fascinating study. I was studying this, and I was like, I'm not going to finish. And then I thought, I don't care. Because <laughs> it's not about finishing. It's about, you know, getting the truth out of this. And I thought, 
This phrase here, help the weak. How simple is that phrase? Can everybody say it? Help the weak, right? You know how controversial this phrase is among scholars? Wildly controversial. You know how many views there are with those two words, help and weak? You would think it's simple because the English suggests to us that it's simple. (laughs) But as it often does, the Greek complicates it quite a bit. Because the Greek word to help is a cheap word. How many of you guys have to help in your, in your Bibles, right? Almost everybody. Any, you know, ESV, NASV, NIV, almost everybody has help the weak. Ironically, the King James comes the closest. Where's all my brothers, my KJV brothers and sisters? Notice I didn't add the word KJV only. But where are the KJV Because the KJV actually uses the word uphold the weak. Ah, that's a little bit better. Because the Greek word here, anteko, literally means to cling to someone, to hold fast to someone. Do you get that from the word help? No, not necessarily. I mean, help could be a conversation. Help could be, you know, I gave you money or something. I don't know. Help could just be, you know, just give them a helpful word. But cling, hold fast to them. Here's the best word of all. This is the Greek lexicon, bedag. Be devoted to them. Wow. Now we're beginning to understand the type of help that is needed in order to administer the grace that they need. You must be devoted to that person. But that raises another controversial question. What does it mean to be weak? What comes to your mind when I read that, help the weak, what's the first thing that came to your mind? People that are weak, how? Emotionally weak, spiritually weak, physically weak? How are they weak? Socially weak? Are we talking about poor people? Are we talking about crippled people? What are we talking about? Guess what? In the New Testament, all of those categories apply (laughs) for this Greek word can speak of every single one of those conditions. It can talk about literal disease. It can talk about physical injury. All of that. Some type of physical condition that is debilitating. That's what 1 Corinthians 11.30 says. The word can also be more abstract. It can speak of a person's limitations spiritually. Though not necessarily sinful. So what am I talking about? Jesus says in Matthew 26, 41, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And what was he referring to? He was referring to his disciples who did not stay up in prayer. I don't know if they necessarily sinned, but just because of their weakness, they, could, they didn't press in. They didn't pray long enough. It's also used of the weaker brother, like in Romans chapter 14. There, the term here, asthenes, refers to the conscience. That a person can be weak in conscience and cannot just liberally enjoy certain freedoms that you may have in your spiritual walk with God. Spiritually, again, this can refer to either a moral dimension or an amoral dimension. And on a moral level, it's used to describe our state of total depravity and total inability in Romans chapter 5, verse 6, where it says, when we were weak, or when, probably even a better uh, word, when we were helpless, 
the word is literally is like we had no strength because we were dead in our sin. And in that state, Christ came to redeem us. It can also speak of some kind of class or status. You know that because in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 22, the Apostle Paul says, To the weak person, I became weak that I may win the weak. Well, obviously, he's not saying I took upon any sinful attributes that that person had. So it must mean something else. And guess what? On this level, commentators are... It's like, okay, I just went through all my commentators. I still don't know. What do I do now? I don't have John MacArthur's phone number. Who's going to help me interpret this? <laughs> so, for example, I think the Apostle Paul here is speaking about people who are, who are weak, and that has more to do with spiritual weakness than physical weakness. I think that's what the text is implying here, especially if you think about it in light of the broader context of this chapter. What's the broader context of this chapter? The broader context of this chapter, chapter is the day of the Lord. We just came out of a whole reference of the day of the Lord. And these are people that in light of the eschaton may be having trouble dealing and grappling with the coming judgment. Matter of fact, Jeffrey Wyma, in his excellent commentary on 1st, 2nd Thessalonians, he says, this means that the weak refers to those in the Thessalonian church who are excessively anxious because of their status as the eschatological judgment connected with Christ and his return. This is the interpretation that best fits the context. Okay, so contextually, exegetically, that might be the precise meaning that Paul had in his mind. However, generally, more broadly, what what we should take away from this is weakness of any kind. When we see someone in the church that is weak suffering in any way, whether it's physical weakness, whether it's some kind of uh, sickness or disease, whether it's some sort of financial distress, whether it's some sort of spiritual immaturity that we see in them, or even a sinful condition, we should be empathetic. We should, in the grace of God and with gentleness and humility, look to ourselves, lest we too be tempted. We should, in that spirit of humility, come to give aid and be devoted to that person so as to see them restored to a place of strength. It's almost like if this is talking about spiritual weakness of any kind, remember I told you about balancing, bringing in the right word that's needed, right? It's almost like at that point, you need to tell them how much power is available for them. I know you're in a wheelchair right now, physically or spiritually, but do you know the power that is available to you? Look at Ephesians chapter 1 with me. Ephesians. It says here, and this, is, this would be such a good text to go to someone in the church that is, you're perceiving as spiritually weak. They just, you know, when a person is weak, what makes them weak, keep this in mind, please, is they can't just get over it like everybody else. They can't just overcome as quickly as you can. They're not just that emotionally secure, psychologically secure. They're not just that. They don't do really good whatever, the way that you do socially, uh, you know, even within the context of interpersonal skills. They're just weak. They're weaker than you. That's what makes them weak. But remember, when you're ministering to such a believer, remember this passage. 
I pray that the eyes of your heart, I could be saying this right to the person. Brother, sister, I pray for you. What do I pray for you? That this trial passes? Not necessarily. But that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know. Overcome weakness with knowledge. What is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of the inheritance in the saints? Here it is. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward you if you believe? Right? Towards us who believe. That's the verse that I would use for somebody that is weak. We looked at the challenge of disorder. The challenge of debilitation spiritually. Now, the challenge of what we want to keep the alliteration going. So, the challenge of discipleship. What's the challenge of discipleship? Well, I think it's represented by his last, the last phrase here that he uses in this verse. He says what? Encourage the faint-hearted to help the weak. Be patient with everyone. I love that. Because it forces me as a typically impatient person, ask Trish, typically, typically impatient. Come on, come on, come on, we gotta go, 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 let's go. Don't mean to scare you. That's what it looks like sometimes on Sunday on the way to Hey, Trish, come on, we gotta go. I'm gonna be late. I'm the pastor after all. I mean, I use all kinds of arguments. Get in the car and go. Typically, impatient people are not good uh, counselors. If you're really impatient, you will not have the right demeanor, what we could even say the Christ-like demeanor, to, to, to minister to people's challenges that they're going through, whether it's sin, apathy, whatever it may be, depression, discouragement. Above everything, the shepherd has to be patient, you think about the patience of Jesus. Oh, how patient was Jesus with his disciples, wasn't he? So patient. We're to be patient too. Now, this obviously affects all the believers in the church, but especially the pastor, pastor, preacher, teacher. In Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 42, Jesus told his disciples. Don't be like the world that try to lord over people. That's not the attitude. You're going to lead people. You're going to minister to people. You're going to be in charge of people. You're going to have a charge over the souls of, of people. So especially, you know, looking at uh, a pastoral ministry. But not excluded to that. Not, not limited to that. I would say every single one of us, one another theology, this is what it's all about. We don't lord it over you. No. You know what the right approach is? We come, up, we come next to you from under. Because Jesus says the greatest will be the last, the least, right? You want to sit at my right hand? Be the servant of all. Isn't that what Jesus did for us? He emptied himself of his glory. He came down from his eternal dwelling habitation with the Father. He lowered himself, became like a servant to exemplify to us how do we wash one another's feet. Patience is important because patience also stresses the fact that sanctification is not based on our expectations, our ambitions, our desires, our designs, and our timeline. 
Sanctification is on God's timeline, not ours. That's important. Wives to a husband, husband to a wife, parents to their children. Sanctification, pastors to their members. Sanctification is on God's timeline. I like to see it happen a lot faster, a lot more instantaneous. Yeah, sure, buddy. I'll point that finger right back to you. I don't see your sanctification going up like a rocket ship. Sometimes I see your sanctification sputtering. (laughs) The key is humility because it takes patience to see the Word of God have its way in the church. Patience to see the Spirit of God actually change people. Patience to see Christ formed in His people. Patience to see maturity and the process of maturity to take place in people's lives. Patience to see if counseling will be effective, if the Word of God is going to be received and applied, if repentance is going to take place, if hearts are going to be convicted and changed, if houses are going to be set in order, if marriages are going to be strengthened, if children are going to be reared and trained in the fear of the Lord, if zeal is actually going to be caught and if fruit is actually going to be born. That takes patience. That takes a farmer that waits patiently for the crop to grow. Now, what's the solution to all of this? You got another hour? Okay, maybe you have Colossians 2 though. Or Colossians 3. So turn to Colossians 3 where we'll finish up. They always tell you, don't tell the church when you're going to finish up. Because then they cut their focus off. Okay, so now I'm reminding you to put it back on. If that was you, if you just unplugged, plug back in for a second, okay? We're not done. Colossians 2. Because this is where we begin to kind of see some problem solving take place. This is where we're thinking about solutions on how to deal with such people. What is the demeanor, the attitude, the actions, and the attributes that we have to take? Colossians chapter 3, beginning of verse 12. So as those who have been chosen of God, the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Isn't it amazing? Before he gets to what you do to other people, first he gives you instructions for your own heart. I love it. First get your heart right, then you can turn around and engage in one another ministry. I love it. Then he says, verse 13, bearing with one another, forgiving each other, whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Verse 16 is so critical. Let the word of Christ dwell richly within you. You're not much help to anyone if the Word of Christ is not dwelling richly within you. You see, because what is ministry but an overflow of your heart? An overflow of God's Word out of your heart onto the hearts of other people. That's all it is. With all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another, with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word and deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus. Give thanks to Him. To God. Give thanks through Him to God the Father. Father, 
I pray specifically that you would give us eyes to see, eyes to see the needs that people have, and eyes to see the solutions that you have provided. Give us eyes, Lord, to see the person next to us, how they're doing. Whether or not we need to pursue a deeper conversation. And whether or not we're noticing that we're just dealing with a facade. We need to get down to the heart. So give us those eyes of discernment. To be able to perceive the spiritual heart work that needs to happen. And as you do that, may you also give us eyes to see what are the solutions that you have provided for us in your word. And in the midst of it all, the complexity of it all, as difficult as we may think that that ministry work is, help us to return to a vision of Christ. Help us to come back to the basic fundamental principle of Christianity, which is Christ. And that looking at Christ, we will see all that we need. All the joy, all the patience, all the grace, all the holiness, all the righteousness, all the encouragement, all the mercy, all the humility that we need. And looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. May that messianic vision Fill us with passion for your body today. May that vision of Christ fill us for a, with a passion for the body of Christ so that we would be useful in the church and for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray.